Hello, everybody, and welcome back to our Bible study series in the book of Job. Now, for those listening on SoundCloud, I do highly encourage you to email me very underscore Lutheran at tutanota.com so I can send you a link to where we stream this live. Not only do we have the Bible study here, but we also have precious fellowship time where we get to talk about just about anything. If you have any questions or concerns, you can bring them up during this chat time. Please feel free to send me an email if you're not familiar already with where we're streaming from. But enough of that. If you have a Bible handy, please open it up to the book of Psalms. We are starting with Psalm 1. As we look at what Job's friends have to say in the presuppositions, the beliefs that they come into the conversation with Job, they believe things according to, well, the law, according to what the law says, with a few distortions, of course, with some things that are obviously incorrect. But they're going off of common knowledge. So hear the word of our Lord from Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is Psalm 1. We are grateful for it. Yet, before we turn to Job chapter 11, we must also go to the end matter of the book of Job, wherein our Lord speaks from Job chapter 42, beginning in the seventh verse. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves, and my servant Job shall pray for you. For I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now, understanding some of the initial matters, some of the foundational things that God says about Job, about his friends, we can continue in Job chapter 11, a little bit of background. Job has finally just let loose his lips. He points his finger at God and asks God directly, why? Why have you done this? Why are you permitting this? Are you miscarrying justice? 
why did you even allow me to be born? Why did you show me so much love earlier in my life only to have it crashing down around me? And multiple times now he has said very plainly, I loathe my life. Because he is stuck between a rock and a hard place, either he talks back to God and God points out his sin where he is guilty, even if that's not the case, God can still say you sinned because you didn't see this. Or if he contests with God and says, no, I didn't, God can just squish him. But if he just holds his peace and puts on a fake happy smile, well, then he's destroyed himself. If he sits there and begs for mercy from God, pretending everything is a-okay now, he's borne false witness about himself. Job is in a difficult situation. And here, in Job chapter 11, Zohar has had enough. Let us read his response. Job chapter 11. Then Zophar the Naamathite answered and said, Should a multitude of words go unanswered and a man full of talk be judged right? Should your babble silence men and when you mock shall no one shame you? For you say my doctrine is pure and I am clean in God's eyes, but oh that God would speak and open his lips to you. And that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom, for he is manifold in understanding. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It is higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol, what can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. If he passes through and imprisons and summons the court, who can turn him back? For he knows worthless men. When he sees iniquity, will he not consider it? But a stupid man will get understanding when a wild donkey's colt is born a man. If you prepare your heart, you will stretch out your hands toward him. If iniquity is in your hand, put it far away, and let not injustice dwell in your tents. Surely then you will lift up your face without blemish. You will be secure and will not fear. You will forget your misery. You will remember it as waters that have passed away. And your life will be brighter than the new day. Its darkness will be like the morning. And you'll feel secure because there is hope. You will look around and take your rest in security. You will lie down and none will make you afraid. Many will court your favor. But the eyes of the wicked will fail. All way of escape will be lost to them, and their hope is to breathe their last. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Zophar is a theologian. He is a theologian's theologian, surpassed only, perhaps, by his young dumb friend Elihu who later on, spoiler warning to everybody listening, Elihu says absolutely nothing different from Job's friends. He does kind of make a unique defense of God, but if you actually examine the text of what Elihu says, all three of Job's friends have said similar things already. It is a superfluous addition of a 
uh, brash young man interrupting three elders and the prophet Job because he just has to get his peace in there. I believe that Elihu is the straw that breaks the camel's back and spurs God to action to speak because he is tired of seeing this merry-go-round between Job, his three friends, and now this uh, young dumb man showing up to just burst forth with yet more words without knowledge. But Zophar here lays the groundwork for what Elihu will later say. In verse 2 when he says, Should a multitude of words go unanswered and a man full of talk be judged right? He says, well, listen, you're just saying stuff to say stuff now, Job. Yes, you're, you let loose your lips. You let your voice complain. You've had your little moment. But let the adults talk now, dear Job. Uh, you should silence your babble. When you mock, shall no one shame you? Listen to the heinous things you're saying about God. This is scoffer stuff. And Zophar, being a wise man and a theologian, he understands that it is the mocker and the scoffer whom God has a specific contempt for. And he is understanding Job's words to be mocking God. When you ask these tough questions of our Lord, as Job has... It can come off sounding sacrilegious. At first, what Zophar says is understandable. But then he says, also mockingly, mocking Job in turn, my doctrine is pure and I am clean in God's eyes. The implication being, no, your doctrine is not pure. No, you are not clean in God's eyes. Clearly, Job, you have not read Romans. You have not read the book that says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Maybe you should go read your Bible, Job. But oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you from the fifth verse, and that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom. For he is manifold in understanding. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. And every theologically minded individual reading this starts clapping their hands like a happy baby seal. God does, later on in this book, speak to Job. Zophar speaks with a wish from his heart that God here would finally step in and answer this dispute that has arisen. Yes, if only God would teach you. Maybe if God himself catechized you, Job, maybe then you would listen. Because you're not listening to reason. Uh, we've been going around for a while now after we sat with you for seven days in silence, but you're stubbornly just holding on to your innocence. Yeah, sure, pal. He says, know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. And again, every theologian in the room claps their hands. Because this is, in a certain sense, true. What does every son of Adam deserve? Hell. We are poor, miserable sinners in need of a savior. We rely upon God's mercy and his grace for salvation through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ who died for our sins. No matter what suffering we endure in this life, we deserve far worse. In that sense, it is true. 
It is absolutely true. If my wife dies tonight, if my arm spontaneously combusts as I find her corpse, and I try to go to the emergency room but neither vehicle starts, and I have to cauterize my own wound with an open fire, screaming in pain, Lord knows that is less than I deserve, for I am a sinner. This is most certainly true. However, however, what does God say about Job? And what does God say about Job's friends? We will read over and over again throughout this series, Job 1 verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. This is inspired Holy Scripture in which God says Job is blameless. There's something special about Job in all of his generations. There's something wonderful about him. And of course, yes, he is saved by grace, through faith. Job is a saint. And Job is not without his sins in his past. That is absolutely true. But such facts are orthogonal to the circumstances. Zophar does not know this. Zophar is looking at things through a theological lens. And we will get into that tonight. But he continues in the seventh verse, Can you find out the deep things of God? Obvious answer, no. No human being by their own power can. Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? No, he is infinite, we are not. We are finite. It is higher than heaven, what can you do? Deeper than Sheol, what can you know? Are you hearing a little bit of Elihu's speech in this? Uh, for those who have read all of Job in the past, Elihu speaks with this same voice. Listen, God is bigger than you. God is smarter than you. He is wiser than you. Do you really think you're speaking wisdom here, Job? But Zophar is one of the first to say it. God himself is so massive, so ineffable, that to question him, to contradict him, is a grave error on our part. Again, that's true. God is ineffable. God is infinite. He is massive beyond our comprehension. He is the omnipotent creator of the entire universe, but so far is missing something. We'll keep going. Because, in fact, he's missing two things. Verse 11, For he knows worthless men. When he sees iniquity, will he not consider it? But a stupid man will get understanding when a wild donkey's colt is born a man. This is a dig at Job. He knows worthless men. You wouldn't be worthless, except this is happening to you, Job. Therefore, you are worthless, and there is some iniquity that you're not fessing up to. But you're stupid, so I doubt that you're going to get it. If you prepare your heart and stretch out your hands toward him, if iniquity is in your hand, put it far away, and let not injustice dwell in your tents. Listen, you've got to give this up. I've got a whole Bible that talks about human suffering. I've got a whole Bible that says we are all sinners and you're deserving 
far more than what you're getting right now, Job. So you better fess up and you better put this sin away from you. You better confess. Surely then you'll lift up your face without blemish. Oh, your conscience is going to be so clean. After all, don't we know law and gospel? Don't we know that once you have heard the gospel upon the confession of your sins, you've received absolution, that your conscience is going to be clean? Just put faith in God's word. It'll make everything better. You'll be secure and will not fear. You will forget your misery. Ah, yes. We are all new creations in Jesus Christ. Haven't we heard that before? You will remember it as waters that have passed away. Your life will be brighter than the noonday. Don't you understand how new God can make everything for you? And you will feel secure because there is a hope. You will look around and take your rest in security. You will lie down and none will make you afraid. Many will court your favor. I imagine Zophar being very confused later on in life. Everything he's saying right now, with the exception of putting some iniquity far away from Job, a lot of it is absolutely true, isn't it? God does speak later on to Job from the whirlwind. God does, upon Job repenting in dust and ashes, restore Job and help him to forget his misery, brings him to security, and makes him so wealthy that it is an inescapable conclusion that, well, many will court Job for his favor. And yes, verse 20 is also patently true. The eyes of the wicked will fail, all way of escape will be lost to them, and their hope is to breathe their last. It's only the wicked that really want to die. Job, you've been saying that you loathe your life, you wish you could die. I know out of piety you're not going to kill yourself, but come on, Job. Come on. You got something to repent of. Zophar speaks much truth here. Theological truth, yes. But we know that he missed a few things. At least two. The glaring one is that God has declared Job to be blameless. Much of his accusations simply do not apply. Even Job being born a son of Adam is still a sinner. Sure, he's not being blamed for his sins. He is justified. God has declared it. Second, though, and this is crucial to understanding the book of Job. The God of the theologians does not exist. What do I mean by that? There is a God of the theologians. Something that the theologians come up with in their heads. Well-meaning, talented theologians, Christians undoubtedly, have come up with a machine God in the past, and many of them do so today. Where God has to act in incredibly predictable, explainable, logical, and uh, obviously always apparently consistent ways. And if there is an inconsistency in what the God of the theologians does and what actually happens, well then we have to explain it away to make sure that our God is a perfect, nice little logical present for us. A nice little God in the box, a clockwork God, if you will. This is the glaring hole in so much theology today, where theologians, out of perhaps misplaced well intentions or on the worse end of the spectrum, 
arrogance seem to believe that God has to do things according to their theology. They believe that God can only make those decisions which are, well, copacetic, if you will, to how they conceive of him. They've logicked God into a prison cell and said, You have no personhood. You cannot make your own decisions. I know your nature. And if person A does action B, then you, dear God, must do response C. When Zophar says, Listen, you're getting better than you deserve, pal, to Job. That is a rock-solid theological statement. You can make that exact case from the book of James, from the book of Romans, from the book of Hebrews, that we deserve the worst of the worst of torments ever. When he says God is infinite, you can't understand him, so it's bad for you to question him this way. Well, Zophar has an incredibly rock-solid case. Who are we to question God? Who is the clay to say to the potter, How, why have you made me this way? But God does not operate based on our dictum. God does not have to obey our rules. And our observations of God can tell us what he has promised to do. It does not tell us what he must do. Let me give some examples. In Adam, all die. That is a true statement from the book of Romans. Ever since the fall, humanity has been cursed with death. What does that make you think about Enoch, who didn't taste death? What does that make you think about Elijah, who did not die? Two glaring, very glaring exceptions to that rule. God says in his law, a man who commits adultery, him and the woman with whom he commits adultery, shall be stoned to death. Why didn't that happen to David? Why did that not happen to King David? No, really. If a man commits murder, the Mosaic law prescribes that man who has committed murder to die. But God specifically makes sure that David does not taste death on account of of his murder of Uriah the Hittite and his adultery with Bathsheba, Uriah's wife. Why? Is this inconsistency or injustice with God? Absolutely not. But it is God showing us that he can make his own decisions. And if they seem to contradict something on our behalf, if they make us uncomfortable, if it feels like God is arbitrary and unpredictable, or perhaps, dare we say it, capricious, suddenly now, we have to wrestle with the fact that God does not answer to us. And all of the wisdom of Scripture, and all of the law which says, do good to get good, but if you do bad, heaven help you, you're going to receive a heck of a lot of bad, isn't applicable in Job's situation. God says it's not. Job was blameless. God says his word does not come back to him empty if he says something. As Isaiah 55 describes to us, it's going to happen. God is absolutely sovereign. If he says something, it's true. And this is why some people, when they read the book of Job, 
they go insane. They don't want to admit it. They do not want to wrestle with and grapple with God having freedom to do as he wills. They do not want to wrestle with the fact that God can do as he pleases, even if it appears to go against our preconceived notions of the God of the theologians. This is why I have shown some people an article by Ed Giussino, a lay theologian of dubious uh, theological origins, claiming that the hidden truth of the book of Job is that it's a story about the devil. Uh, that Job is supposedly a grandson of Jacob, but also he's the devil dwelling in Job, but also Job is the devil, and he is also Pharaoh, and the Ice Age was a kind of freeze in time that reflects the chain placed on Satan for a thousand years in Revelation 20, which ends with Christ rising from the dead. So now we can trust in Jesus to remove the evil seed in our heart that started when Eve committed adultery in Eden, which was actually a man, so that explains something something. Job says he never committed adultery, but clearly he's lying because as Satan he slept with Eve. Also, by the way, people are reincarnated, and Job supposedly reveals this, but they're only reincarnated if they're bad people or something. Someone reading Job without being willing to accept what the book of Job tells us, inevitably will either go insane, like this individual named Jacino and his crazy outlook on what scripture teaches, or instead they decide to hate God for his freedom. I'm sure we're all familiar with Eli Wiesel or Eli Weasel, I don't know how I'm supposed to pronounce his name, he claimed that Job rightly accused God of injustice. Oh, he took Job at its word, but he would not accept that this is not the God of the theologians out there. And uh, Eli Wiesel, being involved in Judaism, believed it was right to scream at God and hurl epithets at him, being willing to blaspheme if he has offended you too much. Because how could God destroy this man's life for the sake of a cosmic bet? And then claim that he's, well, bigger and stronger and smarter than Job, so uh, ultimately Job does not have recourse. We need to accept that God is free to do as he pleases, even if it surprises us, even if it shocks us, even if it makes us uncomfortable. Because St. James has told us and taught us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that God's purpose in all of this is being compassionate and merciful toward us. So like Zophar, let us know our theology. Absolutely, that is the general course of things. But unlike Zophar, may we stick with what the Lord says and worship him in a true relationship. Not with a machine God that we find comfortably predictable, but as with the three divine persons of the Holy Trinity, who on occasion can surprise us, so long as we trust that he surprises us for our own good. Because of all the surprises that God can have, being the only truly free actor of 
and inside and outside of creation, he has promised that he loves us. And for us, for us believers, all from God is grace. Now, Job isn't going to get that message quite yet, but we will examine his response to Zophar the theologian next week. And until then, our Lord bless you and keep you. Amen and amen.